Chapter forty five of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter forty five. Yet tis a weary task to school the heart, ere years of grief have tamed its fiery spirit, into that still and passive fortitude which is but learned from suffering. Hemans. Miss Gertrude, said Mrs. Prime, opening the parlor door, putting her head cautiously in, looking round, and then advancing with a stealthy pace, like that of a favorite family cat, which is venturing to step a little beyond its usual limits. My, how busy you are! Lor's sakes alive, if you ain't rippin' up them great curtains of Miss Graham's for the wash. I wouldn't be botherin' with them, Miss Graham. She won't be here for this fortnight, and Miss Alice will have time enough. Oh, I have nothing else to do, Mrs. Prime. It's no trouble. Then, looking up pleasantly at the old cook, she added, It seems very cozy for us all to be at home again, doesn't it? It seems beautiful, answered Mrs. Prime, with emphasis. And, I hope there's no harm in saying it, I can't help thinking how nice it would be if we could all live on just as we are now, without no more intrusions. Gertrude smiled and said, Everything looks as it used to in old times, when I first came here. I was quite a child then, continued she, with a sigh. Gracious me, what are you now? said Mrs. Prime. For mercy's sakes, Miss Gertrude, don't you begin to think about growing old. There's nothing like feelin' young to keep young. There's Miss Patty Pace now. I have been meaning to ask after her, exclaimed Gertrude, resuming her scissors, and commencing to rip out another window curtain. Is she alive and well yet? She? replied Mrs. Prime. Lor, she won't never die. Old woman like her, that feels themselves young gals. Allers live forever. But I came a purpose to speak to you about her. The baker's boy that fetched the loaves this mornin' brought an errant from her, and she wants to see you the first chance she can get. But I wouldn't hurry, either, about going there, or anywhere, Miss Gertrude, till I got rested. For I believe you ain't well, and you look so spent, and kind of tired out." "'Did she wish to see me?' asked Gertrude. "'Poor old thing. I'll go and see her, this very afternoon. "'And you needn't feel anxious about me, Mrs. Prime. I am quite well.' And Gertrude went. It was now her second day of suspense. And this, like every other motive for action, was eagerly hailed. She found Miss Patty nearly bent double with rheumatism, dressed with less than her usual care, and crouching over a miserable fire, built of a few chips and shavings.' She appeared, however, to be in tolerable spirits, and hailed Gertrude's entrance by a cordial greeting. The curiosity for which she was always remarkable seemed to have increased, rather than diminished, with the infirmities of age. Innumerable were the questions she put to Gertrude regarding her own personal experiences during the past year, and the movements of the circles in which she had been living. She showed a special interest in Saratoga life, the latest fashions exhibited there, and the opportunities which the place afforded for forming advantageous matrimonial connections. "'So you have not yet chosen a companion,' said she, after Gertrude had patiently and good-naturedly responded to all her queries. "'That is a circumstance to be regretted.' "'Not,' continued she, with a little smirk and a slight wave of the hand, "'that it is ever too late in life for one to meditate the conjugal tie, which is often assumed with advantage by persons of fifty or more.' And certainly you, who are still in the bloom of your days, need not despair of a youthful swain. However, existence, I may say, is twofold when it is shared with a congenial partner. And I had hoped that before now, Miss Gertrude, 
both you and myself would have formed such an alliance. Experience prompts me, when I declare the protection of the matrimonial union one of its greatest advantages. I hope you have not suffered from the want of it, said Gertrude. I have, Miss Gertrude, suffered incalculably. Let me impress upon you, however, that the keenest pangs have been those of the sensibilities. Yes, the sensibilities, the finest part of our nature, and that which will least bear wounding. I am sorry to hear that you have been thus grieved, said Gertrude. I should have supposed that, living quite alone, you might have been spared this trial. Oh, Miss Gertrude, exclaimed the old lady, lifting up both hands, and speaking in such a pitiable tone, as would have excited the compassion of her listener, if it had been one grain less ridiculous. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, wherewith to flee away from my kindred! I foundly thought to have distanced them, but within the last revolving year they have discovered my retreat, and I can no longer elude their vigilance. Hardly can I recover from the shock of one visitation, made, as I am convinced, for the sole purpose of taking an inventory of my possessions, and measuring the length of my days, before the vultures are again seen hovering round my dwelling. But, exclaimed the old lady, raising her voice and inwardly chuckling as she spoke, they shall fall into their own snare, for I will dupe every one of them yet. I was not aware that you had any relations, said Gertrude, and it seems they are such only in name. Name, said Miss Pace, emphatically, I am animated with gladness at the thought that they are not honored with a cognomen which not one of them is worthy to bear. No, they pass by a different name, a name as plebeian as their own coarse souls. There are three of them, who stand to each other in a fraternal relation, and all are alike hateful to me. One, a contemptible coxcomb, comes here to overawe me with his presence, which he conceives to be imposing, calls me aunt, aunt, thus testifying by his speech to a consanguinity which he blindly fancies makes him nearer akin to my property. The old lady, excited to wrath, almost shrieked the last word. And the other two, continued she, with equal heat, are beggars. Always were, always will be. Let em be. I'm glad of it. You hear me, Miss Gertrude. You are a young lady of quick comprehension, and I avail myself of your contiguity, which, although you deny the charge, may shortly be interrupted by some eager lover, to request at your hands a favor, such as I little thought once I should ever feel compelled to seek. I want you. I sent for you to write. Miss Patty lowered her voice to a whisper. The last will and testament of Miss Patty Pace. The poor woman's trembling voice evidenced a deep compassion for herself, which Gertrude could not help sharing and she expressed a willingness to comply with her wishes, as far as was in her power, at the same time declaring her utter ignorance of all the forms of law. To Gertrude's astonishment, Miss Patty announced her own perfect acquaintance with all the legal knowledge which the case demanded, and in so complete and faultless a manner did she dictate the words of the important instrument, that being afterwards properly witnessed, signed, and sealed, it was found at the end of a few months at which time Miss Patty was called upon to give up her earthly trust, free from imperfection and flaw, and proved a satisfactory direction for the disposal of the inheritance. It may be as well to state here, however, that he who was pronounced sole heir to her really valuable property never availed himself of the bequest, otherwise than to make a careful bestowal of it among the most needy and worthy of her relatives." Notwithstanding the protestations of several respectable individuals, who were present at the attestation of the document, 
all of whom pronounced Miss Patty sane, and collected to her last moments. He never would believe that a sound mind could have made so wild and erratic a disposal of the hardly earned and carefully preserved savings of years. This sole inheritor of her estates was William Sullivan, the knight of the rosy countenance, and the same chivalrous spirit which won Miss Patty's virgin heart, and gained for him her lasting favor, prompted him to disclaim and utterly refuse the acceptance of a reward so wholly disproportioned to the slight service he had rendered the old lady. Though he could not fail to be amused, he was nevertheless deeply touched by the preamble to the will, in which Miss Patty set forth in a most characteristic manner the feelings and motives which had influenced her in the choice of an heir to her possessions. A gentlewoman of advanced years, who has clung to life and its hopes, and, in spite of many vexatious vicissitudes, feels something loath to depart, has been forcibly reminded by her relations that ere another smiling springtime she may have a call to join the deceased lines of paces, a family which will, on her departure, here become extinct. With the most polite of courtesies, and a passing wave of the hand, Miss Patty acknowledges the forethought of her relations of the other branch, in reminding her, before it be too late, of the propriety of naming the individual for whose benefit it is her desire to make a testamentary provision. She has looked about the world, viewed all her fellows in the glass of memory, and made her final election. The youth himself, the most gallant young gentleman of his day, will open his eyes in astonishment, and declare, Madame, I know you not. But, sir, Miss Patty, old, ugly, and infirm, has a heart which feels as keenly as it did in youth. She has not forgotten, she means now to signify, by her last deeds, how vividly she remembers. The rosy-cheeked youth, who once raised her from the frosty earth, took her withered hand, placed it within his vigorous young arm, and with sunny smiles and cheering words, escorted the rheumatic old woman to a refuge from the wintry elements. Miss Patty has a natural love of courtesy, and the deference offered by gay and beautiful youth, to helpless and despised age, has touched a sensitive chord. Miss Patty, it is no secret, has some little hoarded treasures, and, since she cannot be on the spot to superintend their expenditure, she has, after some struggles, resolved to secure them from pollution, by awarding these savings of years, to one possessed of such true gentility as Master William Sullivan, confidently assured that he will never disgrace the former owner of the property, or permit her wealth to flow into vulgar channels. Then followed an inventory of the estate, a most remarkable estate, consisting of odds and ends of everything, and finally a carefully and legally worded document, assigning the whole of the strange medley, without legacies or encumbrances, to the sole use and disposal of the appointed heir. Gertrude found it no easy task to gather and transfix in writing the exact idea which the old woman's rambling dictation was intended to convey, and it was two or three hours before the manuscript was completed, and the patient and diligent scribe permitted to depart. The sky was overcast, and a drizzling rain beginning to fall, as she commenced walking towards home. But the distance was not great, and the only damage she sustained was a slight dampness to her garments. Emily perceived it at once, however. "'Your dress is quite wet,' said she. "'You must go and sit by the parlor fire. I shall not go down until tea-time, but father is there, and will be glad of your company. He has been alone all the afternoon.' Gertrude found Mr. Graham sitting in front of a pleasant wood-fire half-dozing, half-reading. She took a book and a low chair, and joined him. 
Finding the heat too great, however, she soon retreated to a sofa, at the opposite side of the room. Hardly had she done so, when there was a ring at the front door-bell. The housemaid, who was passing by the door, opened it, and immediately ushered in a visitor. It was Willie. Gertrude rose, but trembling from head to foot, so that she dared not trust herself to take a step forward. Willie advanced into the centre of the room, then looked at Gertrude, bowed, hesitated, and said, "'Miss Flint, is she here?' The colour rushed into Gertrude's face. She attempted to speak, but failed. It was not necessary. The blush was enough. Willie recognised her, and, starting forward, eagerly seized her hand. "'Gertie, is it possible?' The perfect naturalness and case of his manner, the warmth and earnestness with which he took and retained her hand, reassured the agitated girl. The spell seemed partially removed. For a moment he became in her eyes the Willie of old, her dear friend and playmate, and she found voice to exclaim, "'Oh, Willie, you have come at last. I am so glad to see you.' The sound of their voices disturbed Mr. Graham, who had fallen into a nap, from which the ringing of the doorbell and the entrance of a strange step had failed to arouse him. He turned round in his easy-chair, then rose. Willie dropped Gertrude's hand, and stepped towards him. "'Mr. Sullivan,' said Gertrude, with a feeble attempt at a suitable introduction. They shook hands, and then all three sat down. And now all Gertrude's embarrassment returned. It is not unfrequently the case that when the best of friends meet after a long separation, they salute or embrace each other. And then, notwithstanding the weight of matter pressing on the mind of each, sufficient, perhaps, to furnish subjects of conversation for weeks to come, nothing of importance presents itself at once, and a pause ensues, which is finally filled up by some most trivial and unimportant question concerning the journey of the newly arrived party, or the safety of his baggage. But to these latter questions, or any of a similar nature, Gertrude required no answer. She had seen Willie before. She was aware of his arrival knew even the steamer in which he had come, but was anxious to conceal from him this knowledge. She could not tell him, since he seemed so ignorant of the fact himself that they had met before, and it may well be imagined that she was at an utter loss what to do or say, under the circumstances. Her embarrassment soon communicated itself to Willie, and Mr. Graham's presence, which was a restraint to both, made matters worse. Willie, however, first broke the momentary silence. "'I should hardly have known you, Gertrude. I did not know you. How—how did you come?' asked Mr. Graham, abruptly, apparently unconscious that he was interrupting Willie's remark. "'In the Europa,' replied Willie. "'She got into New York about a week ago.' "'Out here, I meant,' said Mr. Graham, rather stiffly. "'Did you come out in the coach?' "'Oh, excuse me, sir,' rejoined Willie. "'I misunderstood you. No, I drove out from Boston in a chase.' "'Did anyone take your horse?' I fastened him in front of the house. Willie glanced out of the window. It was now nearly dusk, to see that the animal was still where he had left him. Mr. Graham settled himself in his easy-chair, and looked into the fire. There was another pause, more painful than the first. "'You are changed, too,' said Gertrude, at last, in reply to Willie's unfinished comment. Then, fearing he might feel hurt at what he must know to be true in more ways than one, the colour which had retreated, mounted once more to her cheeks. He did not seem to feel hurt, however, but replied, "'Yes, an eastern climate makes great changes, but I think I can hardly have altered more than you have. Why, only think, Gertie, you were a child when I went away. 
I suppose I must have known I should have found you a young lady, but I begin to think I never fully realized it. When did you leave Calcutta? The latter part of February. I passed the spring months in Paris. You did not write, said Gertrude, in a faltering voice. No, I was expecting to come across by every steamer, and wanted to surprise you. Conscious that she had probably seemed far less surprised than he expected, she looked confused, but replied, I was very disappointed about the letters, but I am very glad to see you again, Willie. You can't be so glad as I am, said he, lowering his voice, and looking at her with great tenderness. You seem more and more like yourself to me every minute that I see you. I begin to think, however, that I ought to have written, and told you I was coming. Gertrude smiled. Willie's manner was so unchanged, his words so affectionate, that it seemed unkind to doubt his friendliness, although to his undivided love she felt she could have no claim. No, said she, I like surprises. Don't you remember? I always did. Remember? Certainly, replied he. I have never forgotten anything that you liked. Just at this moment Gertrude's birds, whose cage hung in the window at which Willie sat, commenced a little twittering noise, which they always made just at night. He looked up. "'Your birds,' said Gertrude, "'the birds you sent me.' "'Are they all alive and well?' asked he. "'Yes, all of them. "'You have been a kind mistress to the little things. "'They are very tender. "'I am very fond of them. "'You take such care of those you love, dear Gertie, "'that you are sure to preserve their lives as long as they may be.' His tone, still more than his words, betrayed the deep meaning with which he spoke. Gertrude was silent. "'Is Miss Graham well?' asked Willie. Gertrude related, in reply, that her nerves had been recently much disturbed by the terrible experiences through which she had passed, and this led to the subject of the recent disaster, at which Gertrude forbore to mention her having been herself present. Willie spoke with feeling of the sad catastrophe, and with severity of the reckless carelessness which had been the cause of it, and ended by remarking that he had valued friends on board the boat, but was unaware that Miss Graham, whom he loved for Gertrude's sake, was among them. Conversation between Gertrude and Willie had by this time assumed a footing of ease, and something of their former familiarity. The latter had taken a seat near her, on the sofa, that they might talk more restrainedly. For, although Mr. Graham might have dropped asleep again, for anything they knew to the contrary, it was not easy wholly to forget his presence. There were many subjects, however, on which it would have seemed natural for them to speak, had not Gertrude purposely avoided them. The causes of Willie's sudden return, his probable stay, his future plans in life, and especially his reasons for having postponed his visit to herself until he had been in the country more than a week, all these were inquiries which even ordinary interest and curiosity would have suggested, but to Gertrude they all lay under embargo. She neither felt prepared to receive, nor willing to force his confidence on matters which must inevitably be influenced by his engagement with Miss Clinton and therefore preserved utter silence on these topics, even taking pains to avoid them. And Willie, deeply grieved at this strange want of sympathy on her part, forbore to thrust upon her notice these seemingly forgotten or neglected circumstances. They talked of Calcutta life, of Parisian novelties, of Gertrude's schoolkeeping, and many other things, but spoke not a word of matters which lay nearest to the hearts of both. At length a servant appeared at the door, and, not observing that there was company, announced tea. Mr. Graham rose, and stood with his back to the fire. Willie rose also, and prepared to take leave. Mr. Graham, with frigid civility, urged him to remain, 
and Gertrude hesitated not to urge him to do so. But he declined with such decision that the latter understood plainly that he perceived and felt the neglect with which Mr. Graham had treated him and his visit. In addition to the fact that the old gentleman disliked young man as a class, and that Willie had intruded upon the rare and sacred privacy in which he was indulging, there was the bitter and still rankling recollection that Gertrude had once forsaken himself and Emily, for so he, in his own mind, styled her conscientious choice between conflicting duties, for the very family of which their visitor was the only remaining member, a recollection which did not tend to soften or conciliate the easily prejudiced and obstinate-minded man. Gertrude accompanied Willie to the door. The rain had ceased, but the wind whistled across the piazza. It seemed to be growing cold. Willie buttoned his coat, while he promised to see Gertrude on the following day. "'You have no overcoat,' said she. "'The night is chilly, and you are accustomed to a hot climate. You had better take this shawl.' And she took from the hat-tree a heavy scotch plaid, which always hung there to be used on occasions like the present. He thanked her, and threw it over his arm. Then, taking both her hands in his, looked her steadily in the face for a moment, as if he would fain have spoken. Seeing, however, that she shrank from his mild and affectionate gaze, he dropped her hands, and with a troubled expression bade her good-night, and ran down the door-steps. Gertrude stood with the handle of the door in her hand, until she heard the sound of his horse's hoofs as he drove down the road. Then, hastily shutting it, ran and hid herself in her own room. Well as she had borne up during the longed-for and yet much dreaded meeting, calmly and naturally as she had sustained her part, her courage all forsook her now, and in looking forward to days, weeks, and months of frequent intercourse, she felt that the most trying part of the struggle was yet to come. Had Willie been wholly changed, had he seemed the thoughtless worldling, the fashionable man of society, the cold-hearted devotee of business or of gain, in one of which characters she had lately half-fancied he would appear, had he greeted her with chilling formality, with heartless indifference, or with awkward restraint, she might, while she despised, pitied, or blamed, have learned to love him less. But he had come back as he went, open-hearted, generous, manly, and affectionate, he had manifested the same unaffected warmth of feeling, the same thoughtful tenderness he had ever shown. In short, he was the Willie she had thought of, dreamed of, imagined, and loved. It was evident that in giving his heart to another, he had never wholly forgotten her. While he loved Isabel, he would still feel a friendly, almost a brotherly regard for Gertrude. More than that, it had never occurred to him to bestow. And she must school herself to the cruel task of seeing him day by day, hearing the story of his love for another, and wishing him all joy, as a sister might do a kind and affectionate brother. She must learn to subdue the love whose depth and intensity she had scarcely known until now, and mold it into friendship. As she thought of all this, she found it impossible to still the wildly beating waves that swelled against her aching, throbbing heart. She threw herself upon the bed, buried her face in pillows, and wept. Presently there was a light tap at her door, Believing it to be a summons to the tea-table, she said, without rising, "'Jane, is that you? I do not wish for any supper.' "'It isn't that, miss,' said the girl, "'but I have brought you a letter.' Gertrude sprung up and opened the door. "'A little boy handed it to me, and then ran off as fast as he could,' said the girl, placing a package in her hand. "'He told me to give it to you straight away.' "'Bring me a lamp,' said Gertrude. The girl went for a lamp. Gertrude, in the meantime, endeavouring to judge what a package of such unusual size and thickness could contain. 
She thought it impossible that any letter could so soon arrive from Mr. Amory. The next morning was the earliest time at which she had expected one. Who then could it be from? And while she was wondering, Jane brought a lamp, by the light of which she at once detected his handwriting. And breaking the seal, she drew from the envelope several closely written pages, whose contents she perused with all the eagerness and excitement which the weight, import, and intense interest of the subject might well demand. End of chapter 45